We're moving ahead on the Rural Radio Network into the midday, and that means the midday program comes your way, and we are here on the roundtable to get you all the information that you need to know you have to stay tuned. You know that anyway, but it's always nice to be informed. It's always nice to be here, especially when in the background you can hear the dentist drill. <laughs> Actually, no, it's the uh, final stages of the HVAC renovation that we're having but it sounds like a dentist drill here at the rural radio sounds studios like you're paranoid yeah <laughs> just just a little bit that's not what my clinician says though we've been in this thing you can i suppose you can hear that oh i can yeah and they're they're coming down the home stretch or getting this thing done it's been about a month in the making but when we get uh, all finished with it apparently we're going to be able to uh, have some uh, well let shall we say a little more stable temperature wise all around <laughs> The studios here because it's been a little nice. bit like going from igloo to igloo today. Uh, Susan Littlefield is out in the field today, and uh, I hope you're not out there cold in the field, Susan. <laughs> no kidding. It is definitely a chilly one. I'm sure there's a few frozen hoses out there, including, I think, a few of mine out by the barn. Oh, so no. My thoughts and feelings to all the producers having to deal with. The first real cold, cold snap. Absolutely. Now, we've got a code word in today's headlines. What is the R project? Well, we're going to find out more at 1245. I'm excited to hear this interview as Dave Schroeder did it with the folks at Nebraska Public Power District. It's called the R project, and it's a major transmission line that's going to go from southwest Nebraska to north central Nebraska. Mm -hmm. So this is a major project. And it's going to, I'm sure, have effects on, on many producers and folks along the way as they put this together. So we'll dive into that at 1245. I'm sure it'll be electrifying. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. We appreciate Sorry, it. couldn't read this. Yeah. 1219, 1219, uh, we'll get the updates from the great folks at Water Street Solutions and Dean Hefta. And then at 119, I spent the day with Cindy Cunningham from the National Pork Board yesterday as we attended a foot and mouth disease crisis planning project and okay. so we'll talk more about the the hands-on and hey when you get a bunch of producers in a room and they get to play with toys it turns out to be more education than they thought so so it was you against foot and mouth disease so who won we did of course oh, excellent all right well that's good to know <laughs> yep. and uh, brandon while you were talking there and and did your little aside there uh he he did the indication like a sports broadcaster would she shoots she scores. It was a little bit of a da 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 too, with the whole electrifying. So thank you, Susan, for the punishment this morning. And for sports today, we are going to have all kinds of things to talk about, especially the new Nebraska coach who is yet the new Nebraska coach, but still the old and current Electric, electric, see what it did there, the current UCF coach. So he's splitting duty between the two, but he's not going to be doing any coaching tonight because he is going to receive the National Coach of the Year Award. So we're going to talk more about that at 1225. Also, the University of Nebraska Kearney softball team hosting their annual, 18th annual, Pancake Feed and Fundraiser this weekend and more shakeups in the world of the NFL because the Cleveland Browns are cleaning out their front office. Yeah, they are. All right. Any high-voltage headlines in business, Bob. House Speaker Paul Ryan is saying that House Republicans have enough votes to fund the federal government through December 22nd, and also stocks are moving higher. All right, all this and more coming up today on Midday. 
Time for Ag Weather. We bring in Paul Perkins and brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your ranky dealer. Did it get even colder than we thought it was supposed to? Yeah, about 10 degrees colder than what we thought in many locations. It got down to one below last night in Chedron, so we did get below zero, and that was a two-hour far off the nation's low of six below in Foston, Minnesota, in northwest Minnesota. My heavens. And I'm looking at this uh, current picture with the clouds there. It's just like it's sweeping uh, right along where it's ought to be, uh, where it ought to be to give us some precipitation by later today. Yeah, uh, maybe a little bit of light snow and flurry activity in western areas, and then maybe in the central and east as the night goes on tonight. Right now, our temperature is uh, pretty much in the low and mid 20s across the area. We do have some low 30s over northeast Colorado, in in the northwest corner of Kansas. You team up that temperature with the wind and many of our wind chills right now in the low teens. It's colder today. Thanks to a second push of cold air with high pressure pushing in from the northwest, there will be a chance of some flurries and an increase in clouds late today into tonight with the passage of a weak trough of low pressure. Already some of those clouds pushing into northwest and north central areas of Nebraska. Tomorrow through the weekend, though, looking at a warming trend. Northwest winds tomorrow, though, on the strong side, will be sandwiched in between high pressure over the Rockies and low pressure over Minnesota. Temperatures will be cooler early next week, but still milder than normal behind a cold front that arrives Sunday night. An increase in moisture will lead to a few more clouds and maybe some pockets of light rain or snow. But all in all, not looking at any major weather events over the next seven days. In our long-term forecast, Nebraska and Kansas temperatures predicted to be warmer than normal the middle part of next week. As some colder air approaches from the east, so temperature is expected to trend near normal to slightly cooler than normal late next week through December 20th, which is actually the last day of fall, December 20th. So, yeah, winter's just about to begin. The precipitation forecast expects below normal to near normal precipitation in Nebraska and below normal precipitation for Kansas Tuesday through the 20th. In the latest drought monitor released today, increasing drought across Nebraska and Kansas. In Nebraska, only 38% of Nebraska is drought-free. It's abnormally dry in the eastern third of Nebraska or along and east of Highway 281. All areas south of I-80, also the far northwest and north central, and also the southern third of the Panhandle, about the only area not, not experiencing some drought conditions right now in west central Nebraska to the north of I-80. It's only 36% drought-free in Kansas. Abnormal dryness covers the northern one tier of counties and nearly all of central Kansas and the northeast. Moderate drought found in south-central Kansas. Key weather factors in the markets include very little rain for central Argentina and moderate to heavy rain for central Brazil. Warm air will expand from the far west U.S. to the high plains over the next few days. Cold weather will prevail across the eastern third. Snow will continue downwind of the Great Lakes. An ongoing Santa Ana wind vent will continue in southern California through the weekend. That will hamper their wildfire containment. Across the Midwest, seasonably cold and mainly dry weather in the next five to seven days will help out with transportation and the final stages of harvest. Dry weather and warmer than normal temperatures depleting the soil moisture in the southern plains is increasing their crop stress and causing crop rainings to fall. Crop moisture, though, needs will be reduced as some colder air puts the crop into dormancy later this week. Tropical showers helping out with soybean development in central Brazil. It will be drier in the south, and that will benefit the remaining soybean planting for them, but extensive dryness may be looming as La Nina becomes more established. Dryness from La Nina already increasing the crop stress in Argentina. About half of the Argentine corn and soybeans have been planted. 
The weather expected to turn very warm to hot over the next seven days for them. Warm to hot. Yes, yep. in Argentina, but not good with uh, La Nina starting to show its influence. All right. Well, that's what you might expect, I guess, on the other end of the world right now. So as we get into the weekend, a slight but not hot warming trend. Yeah, nice warming trend, kind of just in time for maybe weekend plans and getting some stuff down outside. It looks like Sunday going to be our warmest day. All right, we'll take it. And your ag weather is brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your ranky dealer when you need weather anytime. KRVN.com. Hosting their annual meeting here in Kearney. I'm Shaley Peters with a midday check of your ag news here on the Rural Radio Network. The Marketing and Commerce Committee drew in quite a crowd on Thursday to hear updates on the ELD mandate, USDA quality grading and past policy. Jessica Herman, NC's Director of Legal and Regulatory Affairs, says she's hopeful given the recent waiver. Definitely been the hot topic over the past year. We have gotten some great news out of Federal Motor Carriers. We have received a 90-day delay from implementation. So what that for livestock callers. So what that means is originally uh, December 18th of this year, if you're hauling livestock or hauling anything, you were supposed to have this electronic logging device put into your vehicle. But now for uh, all livestock callers, you have until around March 18th. Uh, 90 days. And why we're so excited about that is it will give us more time to talk with the agency and explain our concerns on why this device isn't ready and why haulers aren't ready to meet the mandate and hopefully get a longer-term solution in place. Herman says they're pushing currently on at least a one-year delay. And Monsanto went before a judge on Tuesday to officially ask the court to prevent a proposal to ban the use of a weed killer that many farmers say drifts and causes damage to their crops. An Associated Press report says the Arkansas ban on dicamba will go before legislators next month. The company is asking a judge to issue an injunction preventing the ban on dicamba use in the state while the company challenges the decision that came from the Arkansas Plant Board. The board's proposal would ban an in-season use of dicamba from April 15th through October 31st. Monsanto is losing sales every day. The ban remains in effect, the company says in its court filing. The losses cannot be recovered through an action against the state. Earlier this year, the state approved an initial ban on dicamba use and has received over 1,000 complaints about dicamba drift. The company adds that the ban deprives farmers of a needed tool in their weed control arsenal and the injunction is needed to avoid any potential confusion as farmers make plans and buy inputs for next year. It's also asking the judge to consider whether or not the plant board exceeded its authority. And a three-year study conducted by Samante Banagier, assistant professor of agricultural economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, is offering insights about how producers can be incentivized to implement pro-environmental land use practices. In an effort to conserve and restore natural habitat and other environmental functions, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has implemented payment for ecosystem services schemes to encourage voluntary participation in exchange for a yearly rental payment Payment producers enrolled in a PES scheme, such as the Conservation Reserve Program, agree to remove environmentally sensitive land from agricultural production or implement various practices on their working lands 
under the Conservation Stewardship Program. While the schemes address enrollment and acreage objectives, Managier's research considers enrollment across adjacent properties that may require coordination between neighboring producers. For instance, the habitat and water quality on a producer's parcels adjacent to a neighbor's CRP land may affect the biodiversity of the enrolled environmentally sensitive land. Evidence on cost-effectiveness of PES schemes is mixed, which is why the information Nudge Manager explored could be appealing to regulators. Fund dispersal from the schemes is subject to budget constraints, so being able to rely on information about land use choices of other producers without having to change payment amounts could be an affordable option. And that's a quick check of your midday ag news. For more audio and video, you can visit ruralradio.com. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Shaylee Peters. Today on our program, we talk with Dean Hefta of Water Street Solutions. Grain and soybean futures have fallen again today. Uh, Let's go over to China. What type of activity is happening there as far as futures markets? Well, that's uh, China really has uh, kind of spurred the weakness here uh, in the overnight and especially during the day trade in the U.S. Uh, Their crush margins have been excellent, and that's spurred a tremendous amount of imports. And those supplies have went in the, the market there. That's spilled over to us. And you've had funds rebuilding some of their, their lengths. And you've had some hedging coming in here at these levels. And uh, all of that's coming into press in the market. Right now, we have traded soybeans off the daily lows, kind of hanging out a trend line here. And if we can close off our lows, it's going to be an important swing low on the chart that we're going to need to hold or risk starting a, a downtrend uh, for the time being. Some of the factors here include the Brazil currency, which is lower today. But I was surprised because we had a great number in the export sales report. Yeah, export sales are tremendous, specifically in soybeans, and uh, you know, still, but still lagging. And that's that's been the black cloud hanging over the market. Is at this pace, we're not going to be able to meet the USDA number. And we've got the you know, report next week, and they're gonna are they gonna revise down our exports? And we've got plenty of supplies, and if we don't have a problem in South America, they're gonna have plenty. A lot of this depends on what's gonna come to pass here as we move closer to January and February in the South American production. We are talking with Dean Heft of Water Street Solutions. Let's touch on that. Argentina, are there concerns out there, or is it still too early? Yeah, so you know they're still planting in parts. I mean, think of it as June down there, and so they are dry, and there is of continued dryness, and that's been supporting the market here, but in many ways still too early to get too anxious over it. And uh, La Nina is not as strong as it could be, and so there's some question about how persistent that's going to be as we move into January, February, keeping that, that pressure on that Argentine area. Today is almost a continuation of yesterday's broad commodity sell-off. As we move over to the wheat futures, Dean, uh, this is just one of those times where, again, new contract lows being set. Yeah, it's, um, you know, Russia continues to dominate. Uh, The Canadian Stats Canada uh, had a uh, kind of a bearish final report yesterday. And so, yeah, I mean, we England it does best and continuing to to march into new new lows and uh, eventually will spark more buying but 
uh, right now, that's that's what we does. I haven't checked the charts recently, but uh, is the long, or should say, the short term outlook still a little bit negative on wheat? A, a bit, yeah. You know, from a production, I mean, <clears throat> plenty of supply in the world is keeping a lid on everything. But what's uh, the positive stuff is you have core, uh, you have uh, the funds managed money is very short, both and wheat. And what you need is a trigger to get something to change to bring short. Something to be watching as we move into winter and next spring is the dryness in the plains, southern plains specifically, um, is growing. And that can portent some issues for the Midwest as we move into next year. Thanks, Dean. Dean Hefta of Water Street Solutions. You have more questions? Go to waterstreet.org or call this number, 866-249-2528. It's midday on the Rural Radio Network, and it's time to check sports with Brandon Bennett. Good afternoon, Dirk. New Husker head coach Scott Frost was announced as the winner of the 2017 Home Depot Coach of the Year Award yesterday. And he'll be presented with that award this evening at the Home Depot College Football Awards Show in Atlanta, which will air live on ESPN at 6 p.m. Central Time. Frost was selected as the winner after leading the University of Central Florida to a 12-0 record and an American Athletic Conference championship and as the only undefeated FBS team in 2017. He accepted the Nebraska coaching job on December 2nd, but he will still coach the 10th-ranked Knights in the Peach Bowl on January the 1st against number 7 Auburn. In its 24-year history, the 42-year-old Frost is just the fourth youngest coach ever to win the Home Depot Coach of the Year Award. He compiled an 18-7 and record in two seasons at UCF after he inherited an 0-12 team the year before. According to ESPN, UCF is the only team in FBS history to go from a winless regular season to an undefeated regular season in the span of just two years. In 2017, UCF matched its highest win total in program history while posting the first perfect regular season in the history of their entire conference. With Frost calling the plays, UCF boasted one of the nation's top offenses as the Knights led the country in scoring and were fifth in total offense. The University of Nebraska Kearney softball team is hosting its 18th annual pancake feed and fundraiser coming up this Sunday in Kearney. Head coach Holly Carnes explains why this fundraiser is so important. Not only to fundraise, but also just to get in touch with our community, you know, make something where we can actually get out there and put faces to the names of our players, not only when we play, but also just out and about. So this was just a really good way for us to connect with our community and our boosters, our fans. The Pancake Feet and fundraiser also includes a silent auction. It's this Sunday, December 10th in Kearney at the American Legion Hall. It's open from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. The Atlanta Falcons host the New Orleans Saints tonight in an NFC South matchup with serious playoff ramifications. The 7-5 Falcons desperately need a win over the 9-3 Saints to have a realistic shot at a second straight NFC South title. And in a 14-9 loss in Minnesota last week, Atlanta failed to score a touchdown for the first time in nearly two seasons, a major embarrassment to a team that led the league in scoring just one year ago. A person familiar with the decision said the Cleveland Browns have fired Sasha Brown, the team's vice president for football operations. Brown, who was named the team's top executive by owners during an overhaul following the 2015 season, was relieved of his duties earlier today. The firing was not unexpected since the Browns are 0-12 this season and they've gone just 1-27 under Brown's guidance. 
The team passed up a chance to draft quarterbacks Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson in the past two drafts, and Cleveland has shown little signs of improvement since Brown took over. That's a look at sports. Stay tuned. More of Midday is just ahead. You're listening to The Rule Radio Network. Mostly cloudy tonight with uh, east and central areas having a chance of flurries overnight. I'm Dave Schroeder. Nancy Tonkin, president of the Nebraska chapter of Sons and Daughters of Pearl Harbor Survivors, took part in a proclamation signing yesterday by Governor Pete Ricketts, recognizing today as the 76th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. She also recognized three of Nebraska's four known living Pearl Harbor survivors. Walter Barcel, who was stationed on shore the day of the attack, Ed Guthrie, stationed on the USS Whitney, and Melvin Kennedy, serving on the USS Regal. We are here today to honor and recognize these three living survivors, as well as those that have gone before, and to remember the attack on Pearl Harbor. Barcel is from Wahoo, Guthrie resides in Omaha, and Kennedy is from Grand Island. Meanwhile, survivors are gathering at the site of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor today to remember fellow servicemen killed in the early morning raid 76 years ago. A moment of silence will mark the time that the attack began. The more than 2,300 servicemen were killed in the assault and carried out by Japanese airplanes on December 7, 1941. Nearly half were on the USS Arizona battleship, which exploded and sank after being bombed. A new study shows that housing needs in an eastern Nebraska county extend well beyond the people who will fill more than 800 new jobs at a planned Costco poultry operation. A study from a Lincoln-based community planning firm says Dodge County may need as many as 1,500 new housing units in the next five years. The county's population of 37,000 is expected to grow up to 39,000 during that time with the development of the Costco facility in Fremont. A local real estate broker says several middle to higher priced housing developments are being built in the city. The report says public financing tools may be needed to build low income housing. County leaders say a lack of available housing will slow economic growth. A federal judge in Kansas dismissed a man's drug indictment citing misconduct by the prosecutor who was criticized earlier this year for her handling of a case that caused a man to be jailed for 23 years for a crime he didn't commit. U.S. District Judge Julie Robinson ordered the release of Gregory Orozco on methamphetamine-related charges. The judge said federal prosecutor Tara Moorhead threatened a witness and also belatedly disclosed evidence that might have helped Orozco's case. Our app puts regional, ag, national, and area news just one click away anytime. From the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. Dave Schroeder on the Rural Radio Network, and I'm visiting with Mark Becker. Mark is spokesperson with Nebraska Public Power District based in Columbus. It's a statewide uh, utility serving uh, most of the counties in Nebraska. And, Mark, uh, there's a lot of things going on in uh, public power issues today. 
And among them is a proposed power line that extends from the Sutherland area up through uh, the Sand Hills of Nebraska and to the east a little bit. It's a 345 kilovolt power line that's been uh, called the R Project. Tell me about what started off the R Project in the first place. Probably the uh, best way to talk about it is in 2012, people will remember it was a very, very hot summer. I know we were reaching temperatures well over 100 degrees at 11 o'clock at night. And you, you may well know that that time of the year, there's a lot of irrigation going on. And at the same time, you got a lot of air conditioning going on. People want to be comfortable in their homes, businesses, wherever. Temperatures were very, very high. And one evening here in July, we faced a very possible loss of the electric grid system in the middle part of the state. We, we refer to it as Zone 5. stretches basically from Norfolk almost all to uh, North Platte. And it became a reliability issue. And we uh, talked with the Southwest Power Pool. They were aware of the situation. And out of that came the idea of a transmission line that would basically come from Gerald Gentleman Station down by Sutherland. It would run north up to the Thedford area. And then it would head east over towards Holt County. That will help for reliability. Uh, people want electricity. Your radio station wants electricity. The dentist wants electricity. People want it when they flip their switch on. And that'll give us that reliability we need. People say, well, why don't you just build along the existing transmission lines you have? Well, the problem there is, as you well know, we've had tornadoes that have taken down power lines. We've had ice storms that have taken down power lines. In that particular area, we've seen it over the years. This one will take it away from those particular areas. And it also will, we call it, the second part to this is, Relief of congestion. Now, it's a little hard to, to imagine, but picture an interstate highway in a metropolitan city at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It gets congested, and that's what happens actually on transmission lines. The third aspect of it is, another R is, it opens up for the potential for any renewable energy. Now, is MPPD doing any renewable energy, uh, like, for instance, wind farms? Right now, we're not. We have plenty of energy uh, that we can generate at any time. So we're not exactly wanting to do that. But there is a push of private developers who do want to do renewable energy across the state of Nebraska. Nebraska's been like, uh, what, third best in the country. Uh, some people call it the Saudi Arabia of wind. Uh, I wouldn't put it that far, but there are people out there, and legislature has given that more or less a open ticket to do that. So we have to do is we want to have reliable energy, delivery of that electricity, and we want to relieve that congestion. That that costs us. So the route, though, is going from basically from Sutherland up to Thedford and across to, to Holt County. We went through a couple of years of open houses and public hearings for that line. We have a, a final route right now. We're out getting easements from landowners. 72% of the landowners have signed easements. The easements, some people portray it as taking away their land. Uh, what it does is it allows us to build a structure might be a, a single pole that we might see around town or a lattice structure on their property we will compensate them we will repair all the damages also allows us to do any kind of maintenance work they still own the property cattle can graze underneath there horses can run underneath there they can grow corn under there they can grow wheat so it's not taking away the land they still own it we will compensate them for that though so that's where we stand. And right now, as we just finished a public comment period, it was extended about an extra 60 days for an environmental impact statement. Uh, we requested from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service a uh, what is called a take permit uh, for the American bearing beetle. It is an endangered species. 
So it allows us to do the construction work, and we will attempt to mitigate any kind of damage to the American bearing beetle. But there's always the possibility we'll, quote, take a bearing beetle somewhere along the way. And where is it at in the process? Uh, there is just a comment period that just closed on environmental review. And what would be the next steps then in this process? Okay. Well, there's several steps. Uh, first of all, we'll wait for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to give us that permit. Okay, once we have that, that allows us to move forward with the construction of the line. Now, as far as construction, we have not put out our bid or bid package for the actual construction of it. We think maybe later this year, 2017, or early 2018, we'll send that out to the bidders that do those kind of work, and uh, then we'll determine who's the uh, selected construction company that will handle that. There are a lot of them that are very experienced in this kind of work, so we're not worried about finding someone to do it. There are going to be a lot of things in there that uh, in the bid package uh, for environmental purposes, uh, how do you handle diesel, uh, fuel, because we're going to use helicopters, we're going to use low-pressure um, vehicles uh, with uh, big, wide tires. Uh, we are not building any roads. We're going to use existing roads, uh, existing four-wheeler tracks. Uh, we're not going to go out and construct roads. That's not our business. Our business is to supply electricity. We're visiting with Mark Becker. Mark is spokesperson with Nebraska Public Power District. And I'm Dave Schroeder on the Rural Radio Network. On the Rural Radio Network as we talk with Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities and the Livestock Futures. And I guess you can say again we had a little bit more volatility, up and down moves again. Yeah, up and down all day long. Uh, we had kind of an unusual uh, finish in the uh, livestock. Uh, funny patterns have developed. For example, in the cattle, the first four months uh, lower, then in the next three months higher. Uh, in the feeders, oh, and the, in the hogs, first uh, five months uh, lower, and then the rest higher. And then just the opposite in the feeders. The first four months higher, the rest lower. So a lot of spreading took place even uh, during the day. But, uh, yeah, we were on both sides. Uh, I think from the cattle standpoint, we got a little oversold uh, uh what sold yesterday was it and so far today it sounds like is a little bit weaker uh and the cash and then cutouts at noon were lower once again but uh we were a little bit oversold ran up and then uh, fell back uh, going into the close and the feeders uh, also doing virtually the same thing but ending up with higher close in, in the first several months uh and lower in the back so uh, one bear spread one bull spread the hogs bear spread there too, where uh, cash seemed a little bit softer today. The uh, uh, cutouts also uh, were uh, lower uh, last night, but uh, rebounded just a bit today. And uh, but it didn't stop uh, the selling, and it looked like it was uh, bear spreading there also. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Call him at eight hundred three two eight zero one three four. Dewey Nelson reporting. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Those in attendance yesterday to the FMD crisis planning learned just that. 
hands-on how they would handle a situation should there be an FMD outbreak. Now, there hasn't been one since 1929, but it's good to stay in practice. That according to Cindy Cunningham with the National Pork Board. What we're trying to do here is bring together all the different aspects of the pork industry, from pork producers to packers to, to feed mill representatives to emergency responders to uh, different production aspects. And we're going to work on a foot and mouth disease outbreak. We haven't had foot and mouth disease in the U.S. since 1929, and we hope that we never have it, but we want to be prepared. This would be a devastating situation for our livestock producers. So by doing things like we're doing today, this drill, we're able to understand what the disease is, prepare on our farms and prepare as an industry, and then make sure that if we were to ever need to do this response, we'd have the ability in place to do it. And what a great way to do it with the hands-on ability to pick up the toys and play that role. Absolutely. We all have roles within a response, and that's what we're doing today. With the toys that we have and the tables set up, we set it up as if we're in eastern Nebraska, uh, and we've got hog farms, we've got cattle operations, we've got dairies, we've got packing plants, we've got sale barns, uh, we have a, a large grain elevator. All of these would play into a disease outbreak. And with the toys that we have, it's very much hands-on learning. We can do classroom-style learning all day, but if we're able to move animals around on a table, if we're able to look at what would happen to our communities on that table and actually determine where we would do things and how we would do them and move these toys, it's much easier to understand from a visual aspect. Cindy explained some of the biggest takeaways she hoped producers would have. I think the biggest takeaway from today's drill is we want producers to think about a crisis situation on their farm and how they would deal with that crisis situation today so that if something does happen, they know the resources, they know the plan, they know how to deal with that situation in the future, who to call, where to get help, and, and how they can return to business as usual as quickly as possible. And having the role play gives folks a new way to think about the process of how they'd handle a situation. Preparedness, definitely. If we can identify those vulnerabilities, if we can look at and talk about what could happen on my farm and how will I deal with it and what resources do I need, we can likely get those resources in place. We can help others understand their role in our response and we can make sure that we can continue consumer confidence in our product. This is the fifth drill that we've done this year. We've done drills uh, in many states. Um, we've done them in Utah. We've done them with Iowa State vet students. We've done it in uh, Illinois. We've also done it in Oklahoma. We're in Nebraska today. Next year we have uh, five or six drills that are already scheduled across the country. Having that local opportunity with our producers in their own state, in their own comfort zone, really helps them to be able to plan and prepare and, and take advantage of the resources available. We learn every time. Sometimes the most valuable part of this drill for us is the ride home. We can learn and talk about what we saw and make tweaks and changes to our plan, the industry plan, so that we know if there are other resources that we need to have available. And, and we're learning just like everybody in the classroom. I think the important thing for our producers to take away from a drill like this is their checkoff is helping them to be prepared. My conversation with Cindy Cunningham during the FMD crisis planning session. I'm Susan Littlefield on the World Radio Network. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network as we talk with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter, This Week in Grain. 
Well, today is a different day. We have John in the studio with us, but the same goes as far as talking markets. Down day again today. Yeah, I would have thought maybe it would have been a better day. I get to stand next to the famous Dewey Nelson, uh, and we wish I had some better news. Obviously, we were kind of back down to uh, two weeks ago's lows when we went to the December delivery. Just can't seem to uh, shake off any any. But bad news and make prices go higher. Exports this morning were pretty good, and I thought maybe we would have some upside given the sell-off in the last two days. But uh, more down here. Uh, December wheat, really the, the contract to watch here, sitting right above four dollars. It's not really a speculative vehicle anymore. But uh, watch that three ninety level. I think there could maybe be another ten cents here. Watch for some demand to kick in, and I think I think we'll have better days ahead. Just trying to be optimistic here as we're uh, settling into uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a bad news pattern in the next couple of weeks with WASD and then the federal interest uh, federal uh, rate height coming down the pipe. How much of an impact does Tuesday's WASD report have? Well, I think the optimism is kind of gone right now, and that's where you're probably getting selling ahead of the report. I think once the news comes out, it'll be digested rather quickly, and we'll focus on the stocks report that'll come out at the end of January. That's really the next one you want to watch. I wouldn't be shocked to see a little bit of a yield hike in corn, but I think the USDA maybe batches that with some feed and residual hikes. So carry out, in my opinion, is probably as high as we'll see, oh, at least over the short term. And then it'll be about watching what uh, what takes place with Argentinian wheat and Australian wheat in the South American markets. Um, Again, you know, commodities you would think would catch a little bit of a rally here, given that we've seen crude bounce, but just an unfortunate day as everything was uh, on the sell. On soybeans, were you expecting something like this, a little bit of a correction after this recent rally? Well, I was down at a conference in Kansas City and spoke to a lot of producers who had been on the sell side of it here as we crossed $10. I think you saw some speculative buying coming into play, and then today with meal leading it lower, you know, soybeans right back down to that 990 level. So while I'm a little bit say down today watching prices fall we really haven't moved this week as we open right around these levels and overall picture uh these funds are still short when when will they start to make a move oh boy i'd like to think it would happen i thought december delivery was going to be kind of the low point like we'd seen in the last couple of years we haven't broken those lows yet so while december isn't really being speculated on we're right back to those levels that we saw two weeks ago i'd expect some upside price action here as we get through the uh the month of december John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago in the studio with us as he's traveling through parts of Kansas, Nebraska, and maybe even into Missouri as he meets with producers. Go to DanielsAgMarketing.com for more information. Dewey Nelson reporting.